0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you are with us this morning. We're so excited to get into God's Word. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. We've been studying through the book of Romans. Our series is called Saving Grace, and it's just been a a wonderful study of one of the greatest, richest, deepest books in the Bible, and we've just really been enjoying it. And we've kind of slowed down a little bit coming here to chapter 8 because this is such a pivotal chapter, not just for the book, but for our lives, it has such, such important things for us to read and know as uh, as we live our lives and as we seek to walk with God and, and understand His way. So uh, we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which starts in verse 18. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to read from 18 to 25 to begin this morning. And by the way, if you like to read the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use that YouVersion Bible app. If you go in there and you sign in, you go to the uh, events section. In the menu then you can find our event and you can take notes in there and share things with other people it's just a great way to engage with it so however you're reading this morning read along with me please from Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious promise, and we pray that as we study it, we would really understand it, that we would understand what it means, but Lord, that we would not just understand it in theory, but that we would really feel it in our hearts. We'd it go from our heads down to our hearts, and Lord, we pray that what we study here on Sunday would change how we live on Monday and forward. So Lord, we ask that you would do that work in us this morning as we open your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys ever get discouraged? I mean, does life ever get you down? If not, you're probably the only person in the world, right, who would say no to that, because I think that's true of all of us. That's, that's part of life. Sometimes you get worn down and discouraged to the point where you, you even wonder, like, what am I even doing here? Like, what is the point of all of this? And I, again, I think that happens to all of us. If that's you, which I suppose it is, then I want you to know this section is is for you. It speaks to you this morning. Here in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, as we begin our study, but from 17 down to verse 30, we're given a perspective on life and a perspective on our circumstances, the goings-on of life, which is absolutely revolutionary, right? Like if you really understand it, if you really take hold of it, if you really embrace it and believe it by faith, um, it will really change the way that you look at your life, and it will enable you to look at all of life's challenges, all of life's difficulties, and face the, anything that life throws at you with courage, confidence, hope, and joy—courage, confidence, hope, and joy—if you understand what this section is saying and what it means for your life. The title of today's message is "The Best Is Yet to Come," and I want you to think about that. Do you know? Do you realize that Christians—that is something which only Christians can honestly, legitimately say—that. The best is yet to come. No matter what you're going through, if your hope is in Jesus Christ, then for you, this is always true. The best is yet to come. It's coming. The, the good days are ahead of you. And because of that, you can be hopeful. And, and you know what hope is, right? Let's define that before we go on. Hope is defined as the expectation of coming good. That's what hope is, the expectation of Of coming good and this is something that which this is something which sets Christianity apart from everything else and everyone else in the world Christians we know that whatever we're going through at the moment right now you can find strength in knowing that the best is still yet to come. The best is yet to come. And that's not just optimism. I want you to understand that. That's not just like glasses half full thinking. It's not just kind of slapping ourselves in the face and telling us, hey, it's going to be okay. No, this is based in our theology, this belief, this promise. It's at the very heart. It's at the very core of the Christian gospel. And it's not just, uh, that one day we're gonna go to heaven. It's actually beyond that. It actually applies to this life here and now as well. The best is yet to come. So as we go through these verses, let me give you an outline of what we're gonna talk about. First of all, we're gonna talk about this. The struggle is real. We're gonna talk about the struggle. The struggle is real. Secondly, the future is bright. And thirdly, where to find strength for today. So the struggle is real, the future is bright, and where to find strength for today. That's how we're gonna break down these verses. So let's begin by looking at the first part from verses 17 to 23, the struggle is real. Now, let me just bring you back to where we left off last week. Uh, if you were here with us, you might have noticed that I, I kind of left off halfway through verse 17. And that's because there's a transition there. So let's look at verse 17. We left off in our study last week talking about adoption and how adoption is. Is a picture of the gospel that the good news of the gospel is that we have been adopted by God into his family we who were not his children he has reached out to us and made us his children through adoption and as a result we get a new identity and a new future and along with that also comes an inheritance right that's what happens when you're part of a family you uh, become an heir you're part of the family you get written into the will and so what is our inheritance as Christians? Our inheritance is, in a word, or two words actually, eternal life. Eternal life, that's what it is. See, our inheritance is the glorious promise that when this life is over, we will live forever with God. In a new heavens, a new earth, there will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more evil, no more pain, no more suffering. First Peter tells us about this inheritance. It says this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. You know what that means? It means that this inheritance is secure. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. Because in Christ, if you became a child of God through faith in Christ, then as a child, you get an inheritance. You get written into the will. So that's what it says there in verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then here's the part I left off last week, and this is where we're picking up now. Provided... We suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. It's like, wait a second. What, what was that last part? Like, I don't know if I like that. Suffer, provided we suffer. Since when are we talking about suffering? I thought we were talking about good stuff, glorious stuff. Like, we're talking about inheritance and being children of God. And we're talking about blessings. I thought we were talking about how we're God's kids, right? And surely God doesn't let his kids go through bad stuff, does he? He doesn't let his kids suffer. Except there was that one who we call the Son of God. He was a child of God. He was the Son of God, and, and he sure did suffer a lot too, didn't he? So maybe that means that God does let his kids suffer. And that brings up a really big issue, a big issue that I want to address before we get any further. It's it's something that's called the trilemma. Okay, the trilemma. It's kind of like a dilemma, but di, di means two, tri means three. So it's a, a three-lemma. It's a trilemma. And And here's what the trilemma is. It says there are three things which Christians claim to be true. And yet, people wonder, can all those three things actually be true at the same time? Are they not somehow mutually exclusive? So here's the trilemma. The three, three things Christians believe, but people wonder, can they all three be true at the same time? Number one, God is loving. The Bible says that God is love. God is loving. Secondly, God is powerful. We say that he's omniscient, all-powerful. He can do anything. And thirdly, There's evil. I mean, if you look at the world and, and you don't think that there's evil in the world, then uh, you're you're a psycho, right? Like if you, you there's, a, you know, rape, there's genocide, there's sex trafficking. If you look at that and you don't say that's evil, then maybe you're evil. I don't know, but evil exists. We see it's in the world. See, and the Bible claims that all these three things are true at the same time. but But for a lot of people, right, they look at that third one, the fact that there's evil in the world. And they say, well, obviously there is. But since there is evil in the world, uh, that must mean one of two things. So it means that either God is not loving or God is not powerful. Because if God is all-powerful, well, that means that he has the ability to stop evil. But if he has the ability to stop evil and he doesn't, well, then that must mean that he's not loving. If, on the other hand, God is loving— and yet he doesn't stop evil, well, that must mean that he's not all-powerful because he'd like to stop evil, he just can't. And people use this argument against Christianity, right? And they'll say, so which is it? We call this a false dichotomy, right? Like uh, two things which are opposed to each other, but they're not, not really exclusive, right? So they say, so which is it? Is God loving or is God powerful? And and sometimes Christians get all confused and they don't know how to respond, and they're like, um, uh Loving. I guess he's loving. And so they say, well, there you go. If he's loving, then he must not be all powerful. Because if he's loving, then he could stop evil, but he doesn't. So therefore, there must be something that's not all powerful in him. And then why would you want to worship a God who can't do something, right? That's not a God at all. So, so maybe there is no God. Or, or if you say, no, no, wait, wait, I take that back. Uh, not loving, actually just powerful. He's all powerful. Then we'll say, okay, well, that means that he could stop evil, but he doesn't. In other words, then he isn't loving, then he's actually bad. And why would you worship a God who is bad? And, and what kind of God is, is bad? Maybe there is no God, or, or at least the one you worship isn't worthy of your worship. And some people are like, wow, I'm, I'm stumped. I guess she got me, right? Like, that's a pretty good argument. But do you know this? That's not actually a very good argument. It's a very common argument, but it's actually not a very good argument. Let me tell you why it's not a good argument. See, as Christians, what we need to do is we need to respond to that, that trilemma argument, whatever uh, name it comes under, and we need to say, you know what? Here's the thing, there's actually more than two attributes of God, right? You're only naming two attributes of God, that he's loving and that he's powerful. You know that there's a whole plethora of a- other attributes that God also has. And so, in in other words, let's add an extra lemma, right? Let's make it a quadrilemma. So instead of a trilemma, let's add another one. We'll have four lemmas, right? A quadrilemma. So God is loving, God is powerful, there is evil in the world, let's add a fourth one. And God is all-knowing. So that kind of changes the situation, doesn't it? So if God is all-knowing and all-wise, then that means that suffering can actually play a role in God's love. If He is all-knowing and all-wise oh, or what if we add another one and we call it a quintilemma We now have five lemmas and we we add a fifth truth, right? God is not only all those other things but he is also Omnipresent, which means that he's outside of time and he's outside of space and so it mean that God has a big-picture perspective on the world on history on all things that we can't possibly have and it means that he is working out a plan Which is so much bigger and might I say so much better than just making sure that we are comfortable and we get everything that we want here and now in this life. And so here's the point of all this. Suffering is part of life here on earth. That's really what he's saying here. Suffering is part of life here on earth, even if you're a child of God. You realize that? Even if you're a child of God. In other words, if Jesus, the Son of God, suffered, then we who are adopted children of God, then why should we expect that we won't also with him? And so the fact that you're a child of God, it doesn't exempt you from experiencing hardship and pain and suffering and difficulty and loss in this life. And sometimes people get upset with God, right? And they say they say things like, God, hey, don't you love me? Then why is this happening to me? Or God, you know, uh, I thought that I'm your child. Why would you let this happen to me if I'm your child? Remember, so was Jesus, and God allowed him to suffer too. So the fact that we are children of God doesn't exempt us from suffering categorically. And so the question then becomes this, and this is really what leads into verse 18. The question becomes this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus if if you still are going to have to deal with the hardships and difficulties of this life? If being a Christian doesn't guarantee you that the circumstances of your life are are necessarily going to get better and God's not going to let anything bad happen to you, if that's not what Christianity guarantees, then is it even worth it to be a Christian at all? Like, think about it like this. What if you're broke? You're like, I'm broke. Okay. And, and, and then you become a Christian and you're still broke. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Or what if you become a Christian? Let's make it a little more serious, right? Like, what if you become a Christian and you read your Bible and you pray and you go to church, but the cancer doesn't go away? What if you become a Christian and you go to church and you serve and you give offerings and tithes and you're all in, but that broken relationship never gets resolved? It never gets better. What if you try to live the Christian life and you still don't get that promotion or whatever it is that you're praying for and asking God to do for you? Is it still worth it to be a Christian? Some people would say no, right? And, and we see that in their actions. They might not say it with their words, but we see it with their actions. Because what, they'll say things, in other words, they'll say things like, hey, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me. Or uh, I tried Christianity, but I gave up on it after a while. Or they might say, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me. Or I tried Christianity, uh, but this tragic thing happened to me, and so I quit. And in verse 18, Paul speaks to this question. Is it worth it to be a Christian even if it doesn't guarantee that God is going to improve the circumstances of your life? If that's not what it guarantees to be a Christian, then is it worth it to be a Christian? And Paul says emphatically, yes. Are you kidding me? Are you even kidding me? Do you not even get what Christianity is about? In other words, is what he's saying. It's more than worth it. And here's what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. See, as Christians, we have a hope which is much bigger, and might I say, again, much better. A hope that is bigger and better than just having a problem-free, comfortable life here and now. But you know, for so many people, that's all they want. That's all they want. is just They just want safety. They want comfort here and now. They want their problems to go away. They want a little extra help from the big guy upstairs. But here's the thing. What God is offering you in Christ, in the gospel— it's something that's so much bigger than that. It's something which is so much better than that. I want you to understand that it's not just something different. It's something better. See, the promise of the gospel is the promise of eternal life. It's a promise of heaven. And not just that, but, but it is this. And if you have that hope, it changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you live. And here's one way, is that when you have that perspective, it sets you free to be a person on a mission. You view this life as like, hey, I've got a short time here, and then I've got eternity awaiting me, and so I'm going to be a person on a mission with these few years that I have. I've got an eternity of comfort and security to look forward to, so rather than seeking comfort and security here and now primarily, I'm going to primarily seek to spend these few years of my life on mission, on a mission to do God's work and to serve other people. Now think about this. For Christians who have the hope of heaven, the worst moments in this life— are as bad as it will ever get. For a Christian, a person who has a hope of heaven, the, the worst moments of this life are as bad as it will ever get. In other words, our best days are ahead of us. In other words, the best is yet to come. But on the other hand, for a person who doesn't have the hope of heaven, the good moments of this life are as good as it will ever get. Ahead is worse. See, if you're not going to heaven, and, and I'll be clear, Jesus made it clear that not everyone is going to heaven. And so if you're not going to heaven, then the good moments of this life are as good as it will ever get. And and so if that's the case for you, then of course it makes sense that you would want to try and make yourself as comfortable as possible here and now. Why sacrifice? Why waste your time on other people? You've got to focus on you. This is all you've got. This is, you know, and if you're on the downward slope, right? Like if you're over the hill, well, you really better focus more on yourself because this is it. It's slipping away between your fingers. Why sacrifice? Why inconvenience yourself for the sake of others? But on the other hand, if you know that the best is yet to come, if you have the hope of heaven, if you know that your best days are ahead, then you can live in a completely different way. And so I want to ask you today to consider this question. Here's my question for you. Does the way you live accurately reflect what you believe about eternity? Now, that's a question that you need to answer between you and God. I just want you to have that question and really pray about and think about it. Does the way you live accurately reflect what you believe about eternity? Let me Let me talk to you about somebody whose life did do that. In the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, one of my favorite sections in the Bible. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Something for me has been a life verse. It's been a, a defining and motivating verse for how I live my life. It's found in Acts chapter 20. And here's the setting. The apostle Paul has been, for over 10 years, he's been planting churches and going around and spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. But he finally gets to this place in Ephesus, where he settles down. In Ephesus, he settles down for three years, and he has a great ministry there. He People love him, he's got tons of friends. Things are good. And then all of a sudden, as he's in Ephesus, he begins to have this this nagging feeling, this sensation that God wants him to go to Jerusalem. And God's telling him, I want you to go to Jerusalem. But here's what he knows. He knows if he goes to Jerusalem, I mean, people don't like him there, right? Like he's going to get beat up. He'll probably get put in jail, and he may even die. And so you look at that and you say, okay, so, uh, you know, that's an easy one. Don't go there if you're going to get beat up and put in jail and maybe die. And, you know, stay where it's safe and where you got friends and where it's good. And here's what Paul says. Check out what he says in verse 22 of chapter 20. He says, Now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, knowing not what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Check this out. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What you're seeing there is a person who is totally free from fear a person who is totally free to follow the leading of God in his life because he's not afraid. He's not afraid, and the reason he's not afraid is because he knows that this life is not all there is for him. For him, the best is yet to come. And did you know, do you know this, that there are some things that you can only do here on earth that you will not be able to do in heaven? There are some things, very limited number of things, which you can only do here on earth, which you will not be able to do in heaven. Let me give you a few examples. So relieving suffering— Relieving suffering is something that you can only do here on earth in this lifetime, right? Because in heaven, there's not going to be more suffering. And so if you want to do that in God's name, this is your chance, this life. Here's another one, helping hurting people. That is something that you can only do in this life because in the life to come, there will be no more hurting people. Uh, Another one is, you know, uh, helping someone who's in need, That's something you can only do in this life. And finally, sharing your faith with others, leading people into a relationship with God by helping them understand God's love for them and the gospel message, the truth. That's something you can only do in this life. You're not going to be able to do them in heaven. Having the hope of heaven, what it does it sets you free to, to fearlessly pursue those things which you can only do here on earth because you know that, hey, look, this life is short and the best is yet to come. Therefore, you can be free from fear and you can follow God with confidence. Now, the struggle is real. That's what we've been talking about. We live in a broken world, and that's what the next few verses tell us. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 20, the beginning says this, for the creation was subjected to futility. The creation, the creation, in other words, here's the deal. It's not only us who have been affected by the curse of sin. All of creation, nature itself, has been affected by the curse of sin. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, it says that when sin came into the world, when Adam sinned and sin came into the world, it says that from that time on, thorns began to grow. Thorns began to grow. In other words, from that time on, all of creation was under a curse of sin, and nature is not as beautiful or as fulfilling or as great as it once was or as it was as it is meant to be now I love nature I love living in Colorado and I love hiking I climb mountains for fun and and when I go out I take pictures but there's this funny thing on my phone that after I take a picture a couple hours later it'll send me like a modified version of that picture right they will be like hey you know that picture you took of that beautiful thing well we made it better and it's act- there's actually a name for this by the way it's called hyper reality hyper reality is the idea that we want something that is better than reality like reality is okay but we want something better than reality right like think about when someone paints a painting of a landscape or a natural setting what do they do they take out the power lines they take out the things that are blemishes in the picture the things that are not that great in real life and they want to make the picture what they want to make it more dramatic, more beautiful than it actually is. They make the mountain peaks a little bit higher. They make the sunset a pop a little bit more. Right? That's what we do with Photoshop, right? We Photoshop our photos. Why? To remove imperfections and to augment the images in order to make them better than reality. And the reason we do those things is because in all of us, we're searching for beauty without blemish. We're searching for perfection and fulfillment. And there is a lot of beauty in this world, and yet we long for something more. We long for something more beautiful, something perfect, something that is truly fulfilling for us in a deep and lasting way. And here's what's really interesting is that in verse 20, where it says, for the creation was subjected to futility. That word futility in the original Greek text uh, can also be translated frustration. So Creation was subjected to frustration but here's what's even more interesting is that this word is the same word that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes where the writer says this phrase over and over vanity everything is vanity it's the same word frustration futility everything in life is futile and frustrating now, now let me explain to you the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me just run you through it. It's, it's written by Solomon, the king of Israel, one of the wealthiest people who ever lived in the history of the world. And it tells his story of how he sought in every way to fulfill this deep sense of emptiness that he felt, this deep sense of frustration that he struggled with. Like all of us, he wanted fulfillment. He wanted satisfaction. He wanted that thing that is missing in his life. And so he tells this story in the book of Ecclesiastes of his pursuit of that. And which, you, if you zoom out on Ecclesiastes, let me just give you the whole book in a nutshell right here. He says, first, I sought fulfillment with women. It says that he was the king, right? So he surrounded himself with the most beautiful women. He married over a 1,000 women, uh, the most beautiful women in his entire kingdom. And after the initial excitement of being surrounded by all these women and being with these women, he still felt empty inside. So he moved on to the next thing. And he said, okay, so next he's turned to partying. And it says that he threw elaborate parties, and he imported exotic animals to be part of this these parties, right? Baboons and peacocks. But after a couple of years of partying, he got burned out on that too, and he he was still empty inside. And so he said, I know, I know what's missing. What I really need is power. And so he amassed an army. He built an army, and he conquered all the surrounding countries, and he built an empire. But he was still empty inside, and so he turned to philosophy, and he turned to learning. He said, if I could just learn, if I could study, if I could fill my mind, that would fill the void in my heart, but it didn't. And so it says that he tried money, and he had so much money that he literally did not know what to do with all of it. And then he realized that too. is futile. It's vanity. It's pointless. He was one of the only people in history who had the means to try all the things which you and me think, if I only had that, then I would be satisfied. Well, he had it, and he wasn't. See, the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is to tell you this, that nothing in this world will ever satisfy you the way that you think it will. In other words, life is frustrating. The struggle is real. And see, what's here's really important about the, the book of Ecclesiastes, that you won't understand the book unless you understand this, is that it raises a problem, but it doesn't give you a solution. It brings up a problem, but it doesn't resolve the problem. It just tells you, here's the problem. Life is frustrating. All the things that you think are going to fulfill you, they're not going to fulfill you. That emptiness that you feel inside, there is nothing in this world which will ever satisfy it. Maybe you hear that and you say, that is depressing. No, it's actually not, because there is a solution. It's just not found in that book, okay? So Now, check out what it says next, and we're going to see what the solution is. But check out what it says next in Romans 8, verse 20. It says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, it didn't want to be, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, this sense of frustration, this sense of emptiness, that nothing in this world can satisfy, It's intentional. It's by design. God put it there for a reason. It's by design that we are always longing for something and looking for something which cannot be found in this life. But the question is, why would God do that? Why would he want us to be frustrated? And it says right there in the text, he did it in hope. He did it in hope. What is the hope? He did it in hope that we would long for, that we would seek after something not of this world. The thing which we seek is redemption. The thing which we seek is him. You know, it's as if we have this lingering memory of where we came from and what we were created for. And as we, we, we long to get back there to our true home, the place inside that we instinctually know that's our true home. And God wants us to feel that frustration. Look at what it says in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. You know, there's so much beauty in this life, but all of the beauty in this world is tainted. Do you experience that? That all the beauty in this world, no matter how beautiful it is, it's tainted. If by nothing less, it's tainted by the fact that it doesn't last. As a dad, I have little kids, and every day I spend with my kids is absolutely beautiful, but it's also absolutely heartbreaking. Maybe some of you who are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's beautiful, and at the same time, it's somewhat heartbreaking, because I know that that moment I enjoyed with them is now over, and I will never get it back. They will never be as small as they are right now. They are never going to be the same right now. This moment is gone already. And how many of you parents, you know what that feeling is like? You wish that time would just stand still, but it's racing forward and it won't stop. And you realize you're never going to get these moments back. And there's so much joy, but at the same time, you die a thousand deaths every day. Or when you go to some beautiful place and you look at some beautiful vista and you stand there and you take it all in, it's great but inevitably it ends. And you can't help but groan. It says in verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. In this hope we were saved. A groan, you know what a groan is? A groan is defined by a dictionary in this way. A deep, inarticulate sound made in response to pain or despair. A deep, inarticulate sound made in response to pain or despair or despair. See, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, even though we have been adopted as children of God, we still groan with the, ch- the pains of childbirth, right? Why? Because we still experience pain and despair in this life because we're broken people in a broken world. We long for that day when things will be right, when they will be the way that they were meant to be, when, the, when our redemption will be complete. We will have new bodies and live in a new earth where things are right forever. But here on this earth, we groan. The struggle is real, but the good news is the future is bright. That's our second point. The future is bright, verses 21 through 25. Verse 21 tells us something incredibly good. It says this, that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the the freedom of the glory of the children of God, right? In other words, even though this world is in bondage to death and corruption, it won't always be that way. It won't always be that way. See, when Jesus died and resurrected, he broke the curse of sin and death. And because of that, the day is coming when creation will be liberated and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, because of what Jesus did, the future is bright. We might be frustrated, we might groan now, but the day is coming when our groaning will end, when instead of frustration, we'll experience fulfillment. That day is coming when instead of decay, all things will be made new. And that's why the best metaphor for this is the one that's used here in this verse, verse 22, the metaphor of childbirth. See, Jesus used that metaphor as well. In Matthew chapter 24, he said it's like childbirth, the the hardships of this life. Here's why. Because in childbirth, the pain might be intense, but it's not going to last forever. It might be intense, but it's not going to last forever. And it's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It is building up to and leading to something great and glorious. And the same is true for us. In verse 23, he says the Christian life is characterized by two things. On the one hand, we groan inwardly, but on the other hand, we wait eagerly. We groan inwardly and we wait eagerly. That's what it means to be a Christian living today, like a mother in childbirth, groaning and eagerly expectant. So in verse 23, it tells us we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's a farming term or maybe even a gardening term, right? It speaks of the first batch you get at the harvest. It's a foretaste of what is to come. And what that means is that God has given us his spirit to work in us, to transform us from the inside, to set us free from sin and bondage. But this is only the first fruits, right? It's only just the beginning of the complete and total transformation that we will experience when our redemption is complete. Verse 24 and 25 tells us, in this hope we were saved. Hope that is is seen is not hope. No one hopes in what they see. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. See, that's the thing. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been saved. But what we will be, what we will experience is not yet here. The day is coming, and it is indeed coming when our redemption will be complete, and we will experience these things in fullness that we now experience only in part. And what that means is that for us as Christians, The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. All of our best days lie ahead, and the day is coming when all of our worst days will be behind us. And so we can face the future knowing that with incredible confidence, with incredible optimism, with incredible hopefulness, and and with incredible courage. No matter what you're going through today, know this. We are the only people in the world who can honestly say with complete assurance and confidence that the best is yet to come. And that brings us to our final section here. Which is where to find strength for today. Now somebody might hear all this that we're talking about, all this stuff about heaven, and they might say, Yeah, well, I mean, look, going to heaven is great. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. But hey, I'm 20 years old, man. That means that I've got like 70 more years to live here on earth. That might be really encouraging for somebody who's like, you know, closer, but you know, if you're in your twenties, your thirties, you're like, man, all right, like that's kind of encouraging but don't you got something else? I mean, isn't there something else that can help me here and now? Like, is that all the help I get is just like hang on and try not to mess up until you die and then you go to heaven? Isn't there more? And yes, absolutely there is more. And that's what we see here in verse 26 through 30. We're going to look primarily at verses 26 through 29. But again, is that the extent of the Christian hope that one day you'll get lucky and you'll die and, and then you'll get to leave this messed up place and be with God forever? Well, certainly it's not less than that. But it is absolutely more than that. It's not less than heaven, but it's actually more than heaven. And here in verse 26, Paul talks about, you know, how God gives us strength for today, right? God doesn't just say, hey, life stinks, but one day you'll get to go to heaven, so just hang on and don't mess up. And you're like, well, if that's all it is, then maybe I should take up some new hobbies like base jumping or smoking or driving without my seatbelt so I can just get there a little quicker, right? But no, there's more to it than that. There's more to this salvation. Look at verse 26. He has given us his spirit to help us in our weakness. He gives us his spirit to help us in our weakness. Even when we don't know how to pray, when you're at a loss for words, you ever been at a loss for words? Maybe you've experienced some kind of sorrow, or maybe you, you face some kind of life decision where you're like, I don't even know what I should pray for. I don't know if I should pray that this thing happens or that this thing happens because I don't even know. They, they could turn out, this could turn out to be a disaster, and this could turn out to be great. And you're like, I don't even know what to pray. It says that when you're at a loss for words, it doesn't mean that you can't pray. Verse 27 tells us that the Father searches our heart and the Spirit helps us in our weakness to pray according to the will of God. Not only has God given us his Spirit to help us in our weakness, but verse 28 says this. One of the most incredible verses in the Bible. Circle, highlight, underline. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice, it doesn't say we think or we suppose or probably. It says we know, we are assured, we know that God causes all things, not some things, all things, to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This verse is so important when it comes to how we look at the circumstances of our life. First of all, when good things happen to us, this verse tells us that we have God to thank for those good things. He's the one who causes those things to happen. But it also tells us, that not everything that happens is good. Do you realize that not everything that happens is good? So we don't just believe this platitude that, you know, if you just look at things from a different perspective, you'll see that they're actually good. No, some things are actually just straight-up bad. It's not that every cloud has a silver lining. Some clouds are just bad clouds, right? Like, some things are just bad. Bad things happen. This doesn't mean that everything that happens is good if you look at it from the right angle. No. Some things are just straight-up bad. And this is what this is saying, that our God... Is something bigger than that? He is a redeemer, which means that he's able to take legitimately bad things and use them for good. Legitimately bad things and use them for good. Now notice this. Who does this promise apply to? Does this just apply to everybody that everybody, everything's gonna work out great for everybody? No. This specifically applies to those who love God and who are called By God, according to his purposes those two terms describe what it means to be a Christian on the one hand you love God you've seen something of him and you respond to his power to his grace to his love and you love him you commit yourself to him on the other hand to be a Christian is to be a person who has been called by God God has reached out to you and brought you into a relationship with himself that's something you couldn't do for yourself And so along with this hope of heaven, God has given us his spirit to help us in our weakness. and He's actively working all things together for our good. In other words, the universe isn't just run by fate, right? It isn't just a watch that got wound up and is running down. No, the universe is run by our loving Heavenly Father, who is working all things together for our ultimate good. But that still begs one last question, and that's this. Well, who gets to say what is good? Who gets to say what's good? If God is working all things together for my good, According to who? Like, whose good is that? How do you define what does that good look like? Well, look what it says in verse 29. I'm going to go ahead and and say this. You should never read verse 28 without also reading verse 29. Okay? Never read verse 28 without also reading verse 29. Because here it tells us what that good is that, that God is doing in our lives, that God is doing for you. Look at verse 29, just the first part. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now we're going to talk about these verses a little bit more next week, too. But here's what you need to see. God's plan for your good is that he wants to make you more like Jesus. God's plan for your good is to make you more like Jesus. Think about it. Jesus is the embodiment of everything that is good and true and right and perfect. So in other words, to be like Jesus is to be a complete and whole person, a balanced person, a spiritual person, a happy person. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, it says that Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. It says, because he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. In other words, God's plan for your life, for your happiness, for your joy, is to make you more like Jesus. But in other words, in order for me to become more like Jesus, there are some things in my life that probably need to change. There are some things that probably need to go. They say that when Michelangelo, the great artist, the sculptor, they say that when he was sculpting, he would always say that the sculpture was already in the rock, and his job as a sculptor was only to release it from the rock. In other words, to remove the parts that were blocking it, the parts that were obscuring it, the parts that didn't need to be there in order to reveal the masterpiece that was inside. And the way that he would do that, of course, was by chipping away at the parts that didn't belong. And in the same way, God does this work in our lives. God, the master sculptor, he takes you and me these big hard pieces of rock and he wants to form us and shape us and make us into the image of his son. Now we currently don't look like his son so what does he do? He gets out the hammer, he gets out the chisel and he starts removing parts. Starts removing those parts which are in the way, which are unnecessary, which don't belong, which need to go. Bang! And sometimes that chiseling process, that hammering process, sometimes it's uncomfortable. As you can imagine, sometimes it hurts. Bang! Parts get knocked off. But through this process, we are being formed more and more into the image of Christ. It's for our good from a Father who loves us. So I'll stop now with this. If God loves me, why why does he still allow bad things to happen to me? And here's why. Because in his love, he's going to use those things for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory to form you into the image of his Son, to make you more like Jesus. Is it worth it? It's more than worth it. These momentary difficulties and hardships are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. The best is yet to come, not only in heaven, but in this life as well. This is a perspective that we have as Christians that only Christians can have. Today, if you're a Christian, take hold of that truth. Live with that perspective. We should be the most hopeful, confident, fearless people in the world because this is true, because the best is yet to come. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this glorious truth, that in you, Jesus, the best is yet to come. And we pray that not only would we uh, believe that, but we would live uh, as if that is truly true. Lord, help us to live fearlessly. Help us to live with confidence, knowing that our best days are yet to come. Help us to have the right perspective on these few years that we have left on this planet. Lord, we pray that uh, we would use them well for your glory and for the things that can only be done in this life. But I pray for anyone here today who says, you know, this is all really great, but I don't even know if I am a child of God. I don't even know if this even applies to me. But I pray for anyone here today who would say that, but they wouldn't leave this building today without putting down their yes and saying, yes, God, I give you my life. And Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.